Hi, everyone. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Today, I'm going to talk about sex, specifically what the Bible has to say about sex. And yes, I know I'm walking into a minefield. This is just a hard topic, right? And, and this is a big room, and not just people in this room, but people who are watching different you know, sites and venues, and those of you who are you know, streaming this, and those of you listening to the podcast, you're all in different places, different background. Some of you are single, never been married. Some of you divorced. Some of you have lost a spouse. Some of you identify as LGBTQ+. Some of you are married. And all of you come at this from different perspectives, different background. And what I would like to do is talk to you individually, hear your story, and I can respond to you, but instead I'm talking to all of you at the same time. And then on top of that, sex is such a personal topic, right? I mean, sex is wrapped up with some of our deepest emotions, some of our experiences. Some of us here have had sexual experiences that causes us to, to find this very difficult, to talk about this topic in a large group like this, very difficult, very troubling. And then on top of that, the church, including Blackhawk, has had a history of talking about sex in a way that causes trauma, causes shame. And um, some of you are in this room right now and you're dreading this talk. And the last thing you want is a straight married guy to come up here and tell you what's the right way to have sex. So uh, I hope you can tell I'm more than a little anxious about this talk. <laughs> Brought two of these today. <laughs> now, why am I walking into this landmine? What is the Sunday school answer to every question? Jesus, Jesus that's right. Jesus talks about sex, and he thinks it's a really important topic. And here at Blackhawk, we are a church that moves toward what Jesus teaches. So I'm going to do my best to try to explain what Jesus is talking about, but I know I'm not going to do it right. I know I'm going to say things that offend, that, that goes wrong. Even though this talk has been vetted by a team, people from different you know, marriage situation, different gender, different, different generational background, even then, I'm going to say the wrong things. I know that. Uh, so I'm asking for grace from you, from all of you, right up front. I'm asking for the benefit of the doubt. I also need to apologize because there is no way I can answer all your questions in a 35-minute talk. It's just not going to happen. So uh, we're gonna, we, we scheduled a couple webinars, and I'll talk more about that later where you can ask your questions. So yeah, so this is part of me that's not looking forward to this talk. But you know, there's another part of me that's absolutely psyched about this talk. Because today, I want to get us past the do's and don'ts of sexuality. I want, I want to get us into the big question. Why did God create human sexuality? What does God want from human sexuality? And I'm convinced that when we get a handle on those questions, it's going to blow your mind, and it's going to fundamentally change how you see sex, your sexuality, and sexuality in the world. Okay, that's my hope. So uh, let's get started. This is the fourth week in our 11-week series 
that's focused on the Sermon on the Mount. If you hope you, I hope you remember the very first week where I talked about how the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And, and Jesus, which means the sermon is invitation, right? And how does Jesus invite people into the kingdom? Well, not by offering them things they want. No, 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 no. He says, I'm gonna show you a different way of being human. I'm gonna paint a picture of this radically reimagined way of being human that is powered by the Spirit of God. You see, this world has us trapped in anxiety, in materialism, in competing with other people, in triviality, in anger, in stress. And Jesus says, it doesn't have to be that way. There's another way of being human. I'm gonna show it to you. Listen and ask yourself, is this somebody that you want to become? So last week we got going with the first section, the first major section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a series of six comparisons. And what's really going on is this. Jesus says, okay, this is what you think is good in your culture. Here's what I'm bringing with the kingdom. Okay? So last week, Pastor Chris got us going, and he said, oh, okay, you guys think do not murder is pretty good. No murder is good. Yeah, that's good. Here's what I'm bringing. Don't cut people down with your words. That's kingdom. By the way, that's a great talk. It's powerful, it's challenging. If you missed it, go catch it online. Today, we're going to the second and third comparisons. And this is where Jesus moves from murder to sex. Matthew chapter five, verses 27. You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Yeah, I know. Tons of question, right? Hard, hard passage. Um, Tons have been written about this. Scholars and pastors debate over this passage. I can't get to it in a 35-minute talk. So let me invite you now uh, to check out the webinar that's coming up. Uh, The first webinar is scheduled for this coming Sunday at 8 p.m. Go to blackhawk.church slash becoming. Go there, register for the webinar, and send in your questions. And we'll talk more, okay? Let's do that. But coming back to this passage, how do we start? Well, we start with remembering that, yeah, Jesus is comparing the ethical culture of their day with the ethics of the kingdom, and he starts with what is the gold standard of their day, which is no adultery, right? No adultery. All right. Well, no adultery, that comes straight out of the Old Testament. It comes out of what, 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 what Moses says, Ten Commandments. Right? No adultery. A person who is married should not have sex with somebody who is not their spouse. This is the ethical belief of the first century Jews, and most first century Jews did not commit adultery. And so Jesus says, okay, you think that's pretty good? You think that's kingdom? You think that's righteousness? 
You think that refraining from sex with somebody who is not your spouse is awesome. It's bravo. It's well done. I'll tell you what's really righteous. I'll tell you what's really good. I'll tell you what's the reimagined way of being human that is powered by the Spirit of God. It's about becoming whole. It's about becoming a whole person where your body and your mind, they come together, they align, they cohere. And so Jesus says there is this plane of human existence where you not only do the right things, you want the right things. And when it comes to sexuality, Jesus says sex is more than just about what you do with your body. It's about what you do with your mind, what you think about, what you fixate on, what you desire. And so Jesus says, to align your body and your mind, the kingdom ethic says, you desire your spouse, yes, but only your spouse. That's kingdom ethics. That's the ultimate expression of human sexuality. Here's my question for you. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that mentally desiring your spouse and only your spouse is the ultimate expression of human sexuality? Because that's certainly not what our culture thinks, okay? In our culture, yeah, okay, I think our culture still frowns upon adultery. I think, I think in our culture, if, you're, if, you know, if you, we say, yeah, if you're married, you shouldn't have sex with not your, somebody who's not your spouse. I think we still say that. But I think that's changing. I think voices for polyamory, voices for open marriages, they're becoming normalized, and they're becoming, they're becoming more mainstream. And certainly, sex without marriage is just standard in our culture, right? The reality is, our culture is moving toward this underlying principle that says, as long as you're consenting adults and nobody's getting hurt, nobody's getting coerced, nobody's being lied to, everybody's into this, then whatever you want to do sexually, that's all okay. And if that's what our culture says about the physical act of sex, then when it comes to your desires, when it comes, what happens in your mind, what you fantasize about, well, you do you. Your desire is who you are. It expresses who you are, and that's all good. And that points to the culture ideal that we live in, right? What is the ideal for a human being in our culture? Well, the, the ideal is a person who fully expresses themselves, especially when it comes to sexuality. Who I have sex with, how do I have sex, or not have sex? How I have mental desires, and how I satisfy those desires, or to not have any desires at all, it's all me, my choice, that expresses who I am, and that's all good. The only problem our culture has is if you have desires, but you don't fulfill them. If you're an adult, who wants to have sex but don't have sex, oh, something's wrong with that, you're repressing yourself, right? It's not healthy. Does that sound familiar? That's the message that's coming to us from our culture. Social media, television, movies, you have access to those, you know what I'm talking about. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches something radically different. Desire only your spouse. 
Now, let me just pause here and just kind of give us a chance to fully appreciate how weird that sounds, how completely out of touch Jesus sounds. We often say here, following Jesus is countercultural. I think many people don't fully realize what we mean by that. I think that today is a moment where we actually get to go, wow, following Jesus is really, really countercultural. Okay? What Jesus teaches is nothing like what our culture teaches, which pushes us to the next question. Why? Why is this Jesus' ideal for human sexuality? What makes it good? What makes it right? Well, you notice in the passage, Jesus doesn't talk about it. He doesn't answer the question because he assumes his audience knows. And they do know because they know the Hebrew Bible, but we don't. So to fully appreciate the calling that Jesus is giving to us, we need to ask a prior question, which is, why did God create human sexuality? Why did God make humans as sexual beings? What does he want out of human sexuality? Now, when it comes to questions about humans, you know, who we are, why we are what we are, what we're supposed to be like, the starting point is always Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Okay? This is the foundational passage of what it means to be human. Um, this is the creation passage. Verse 26, then God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We human beings, we are created in the image of God. Now the word image, tselem in Hebrew, has a very particular meaning. A tselem is a physical representation of something else. A physical representation of something else. So we human beings, we're images of God. We are physical representations of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means two things. Number one, my whole being, okay, all of who I am, by psychosomatic unity, represents God's characteristics. So, I have eyes God can see. I have hands God can manipulate the world. I have a mouth God can speak. I have emotions. God experienced the full range of emotions. I am a person with memory and will and rationality. God is the ultimate person with memory and will and rationality. The second thing, we represent God's authority and power on this earth. We represent God's power and authority to the world, the creation, the creative world, and we represent God to other people. This is who we are, folks. We're created to represent God. We're created to image God. We're created to be God-like. So now we come to the foundational difference between our culture and the Bible. Everything's right here, okay? Our culture says we live to express ourselves. The Bible says we live to express Two different visions 
of being human. If you want to understand why the Bible is so different from our culture, it starts here. If you want to understand Jesus' kingdom ethics, it starts here. If you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it starts here. This says that in all that you do, all that you say, all that you think, be like God. That's the calling. Represent God. And I know what you're thinking. That's not possible. How am I supposed to get there? Okay. That is not the question you should be thinking. Okay, that's not the question. You know why? Because this is an invitation. Right? Jesus doesn't expect you to go, oh, I'm going to live God-like lives before you join the kingdom. Well, pff, that would be silly. No, implicitly in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, come with me. Get to know me. Follow me. I will show you the way. So the question you shouldn't be asking is, how am I going to do that? No, the question you should be asking is, do I want to do that? Have you ever asked yourself the question, do I want to represent God? Do I want to represent God in all that I do, all that I say, and all that I think? Do I want to be godlike? That's the question. And when you have clarity on that first question, then we can move to the second question, which is, how do we represent God with our sexuality? Okay. Now, it begins, that question, the answer to that question begins in verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. And these first two lines right here says every human being, every human being is created in the image of God. They're called to image God. But the third line, there is some disagreements over how to read this, but I think the best reading is that God creates two physical types of humans, male and a female. And yes, I know, I just stepped on landmine. You got all kinds of questions. What about people who are intersex? What about the different gender identities? I know, I know. Um, here's our problem. The Bible's not written to us, but for us. And so uh, the Bible is not written to directly address the questions that we have in the 21st century. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I don't know if it's possible, but if you can put that train of thought aside until the webinar, okay? What I want to do is understand the Bible on its own terms. And then later we can come back and see, okay, how does this answer 21st century issues? Okay, that's okay. So this line says that God creates two different types of physical human beings. And that by the way this verse is structured, I don't have time to get into that. Somehow the coming together of these two types images God in some way. So how are they supposed to come together? And how are they supposed to image God? Well, that's in Genesis chapter 2. Okay. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but we can jump straight to the final verse of the chapter. And this is the passage where the Bible explains marriage. Okay? So a marriage is between a man and a woman, two people. The word united, the Hebrew word is devak, it means to cling. It means to hang on. So the image is of two people hanging onto each other, refusing to let go. This is a union that is recognized by their family, which by extension is their society. And uh, the phrase one flesh refers to sex, obviously. But more than that, it is an image of intimacy, 
of mutual affection, caring and love and serving and listening, seeking the other person's benefit, putting the other person's needs above their own. And, and then the last line, we have naked without shame, which is also about sex. Uh, Professor Davison had this to say about that final verse. The final verse of the creation narrative sets forth the divine approbation upon uninhibited, sensuous, yes, erotic sexuality. Adam and Eve stand before each other naked and unashamed. They look at each other, delighting each other's bodies. They are deeply, passionately, romantically in love. With economy of words and delicacy of taste, the narrator paints a scene of human sexuality as God designed as it should be. Nakedness without shame. A picture of human sexuality, but it goes beyond the physical, obviously. Nakedness without shame is also speaking to vulnerability with complete trust. Openness without fear. A place where you don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to put up walls. So this is God's vision for marriage. A man and woman clinging on to each other, recognized as a unity by their community, passionately in love, physically joined together and emotionally entwined in mutual affection, care, love, service, vulnerability, and trust. Why? Why does God want this? because it represents him. Marriage is the dominant metaphor in the Bible when it comes to describing the relationship between God and his people. It's all over the place in the Bible, all over the place in the Old Testament. Here's just a few examples. Um, Jeremiah 2.2, go and proclaim in the hearings of, here in Jerusalem, this is what Yahweh, by the way, when you see the Lord all caps, that's God's personal name, Yahweh, but this is what Yahweh says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. Yahweh Almighty is his name. Isaiah 62, this is a really interesting one. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. How does a bridegroom rejoice over his bride? Love, passion, desire. So will your God rejoice over you. Your mind's getting going, right? I hope. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. And then Paul had this to say in the letter to Ephesians. For this reason, reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Wait a minute, we just read that. Yeah, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, and he's going to make a comment about it, okay? And here's what he says. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So that passage in Genesis 2 that's about marriage, Paul says, yeah, it's kind of about, about marriage, yeah. But you know, it's really about Christ and the church. <laughs> Why? Because marriage is about Christ and the church. How so? All right. So, marriage between two people 
points to Christ and the church. Okay, church is not a building. You all know that, right? Okay, church is not a building. Church is not a building. Okay. So a marriage, so marriage is between a man and a woman. And so here we have two different types of human beings. And that represents Christ's love for his church or God's love for those who are different. In fact, God's love for those who are his enemies. And that's coming up actually in the Sermon on the Mount. God has a love for those who are other, who are different from himself. And that love is represented in marriage. Those of us who are married, some of you come to realize that, yeah, you know, I get along with people of my sex better. And yet I'm married to a person who is of a different sex. And that difference causes obstacles, causes tension, causes difficulties. And as we go through marriage and learn to overcome these obstacles, and we get through it somehow and create this connection, we image God's love for the church and the obstacles he overcomes to unite and redeem his bride. One flesh. Talking about a relationship of unity, a relationship of intimacy, of vulnerability, of trust and commitment, mutual obedience and submission. That points to the oneness of the bride of of the Christ and the church, the kind of relationship that we should have with Jesus, with God. And then finally, sex. Not gonna draw that. (laughs) (laughs) Sex symbolizes the joy and the pleasure of being united with God. Did you hear what I said? I want you to think about that. Sex is a physical representation of our relationship with God. When I first heard this, when I first learned this, I'm like, what? What? Think about the implications of that. God uses marriage and sex to symbolize our relationship with him. What does that mean about the kind of relationship God is looking for? More questions for the webinar. Marriage and sex points to God, who he is and the kind of relationship he's looking for. Those of you who are parents, your kids, they learn from you. By the way you relate to each other, they they learn about who God is and how does he want to relate with us. In fact, whenever you see a married couple, okay, maybe a happily married couple, that's supposed to remind you, oh yeah, that's the kind of relationship I'm supposed to have with God. You see that. Marriage and sex point to God and his people. They represent God. Which means marriage is sacred. Marriage points to something beyond the human realm. And sex is sacred. It points to something beyond the human realm. And if you understand that, if we come to really grasp that, we'll begin to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Now I'm going to bring up one more topic um, that's actually not in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't talk about it. But I think because Jesus is the speaker, um, I think the the issue does get raised, and that is this. Jesus is a single man who has never had sex. You see, here's the problem. Some of you who are listening, 
you are not married, and you're like, oh wow, the Bible says something's wrong with me. The Bible says there's this glorious way to represent God, and the only way to do it is be married, therefore I must get married. If you're thinking that, let me remind you, Jesus is a single man who has never had sex. But you're not entirely wrong about the Bible. There are portions in the Old Testament that says that the people of God, they should get married and have kids. And the reason for that is in the Old Testament, the way to grow the kingdom of God is by producing children. Procreation is actually doing God's work. But that changed. Even in the Old Testament, there were prophets who come along who say, yeah, there's a day that is coming. A day that is coming when God's gonna create a new community. And that community is not gonna depend on who are your parents. But it's gonna be a community of people which changed hearts. And so in the New Testament, Jesus shows up and he confirms it. He says the kingdom is not about having children. The kingdom is about unity with him. And so he creates a community. He invites 12 guys into this community where they do life together. They get to know each other, right? It is a community centered on Jesus and relationship with Jesus. And this community becomes the foundation of the church. And Jesus says, this church is your new family. And this family supersedes your biological family. This family is the place you find your identity. This family is the place you find intimacy. This family is the place you find belonging. So, marriage is supposed to point to Christ in the church, right? Especially in the Old Testament. It's pointing to a future reality. But now that in the New Testament, Jesus has come and the future reality is here, should you still get married? If you want to. The New Testament says that there's two paths that are possible here. You can get married and point to this wondrous union of Christ and the church, or you can stay single and have the time and energy to delve deep into this unity, this community of Christ and the church. You have more time, you have more energy. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I would like you to be free from concern, he said. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, now Paul is not putting out some rule against marriage. He's not doing that. He says, yeah, go ahead. If you want to get married, go ahead. Go ahead and represent God in that way. But know that you'll get busy with family life. And there's another way, which is you can be single. And you can dive in to deep and rich relationship with a lot of different people and shape the culture of the kingdom of God. And that has been the message to single people from the very get-go. This is not new, folks. For the first 1,500 years of the church, single people ran the church. Single people were known as the most spiritual people in the church. They're the leaders, they're the pastors, they're the theologians. 
And there are Christian traditions right now where that is still going on. That is still the case. There's so much more to be said about that. <laughs> but I'm running out of time. So I'm going to remind you once again about the webinar. This coming, Monday, this coming Sunday, blockhawk.church slash becoming. S register, send in your questions, and we're going to try to get through as many of them as we can. Um, and I know I didn't get to most of your questions, but I, what I want to do right now is talk about how can we, we respond to this message. Um, there are two unhelpful ways of responding to a message like this. One unhelpful way is to, to look at my past and look at my present and go, wow, I am so far from what Jesus' ideal is. And you just, you just racked with, with guilt and shame. That is totally not helpful. That's not what Jesus wants from you. Okay? What Jesus wants is to show you the ideal. Right? This is invitation. This is inspiration. And, and nobody here, nobody here can say, oh, yeah, that ideal that Jesus has, got it. I'm all good. Nobody is saying that. Nobody's even close. Okay? We all fall short in so many different ways. So don't sit there and feel guilty. Instead, ask the question, do I want this? Do I want this? The second unhelpful response is to look at that and go, all right, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it through willpower. And I'm telling you now, you will fail. If you try it through willpower, you will fail. That's not what Jesus is inviting you into. He's not inviting you to a strict discipline of control and discipline. No, Jesus says, come follow me. Get to know me. Walk with me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. This is an invitation into a lifetime of following Jesus. A lifetime of being open to the Holy Spirit working and transforming our lives. It is invitation to a lifetime of becoming. So here are the next steps that I'm asking from you. Number one, try something like this. Talk to God about your sexuality. Have you ever prayed to God about your sexuality? Do you tell him about your experiences, your desires? Do you have that kind of a relationship where you can actually talk to God about, you know, I was just fantasizing that about, about that God. Have you ever done that? Open up to God about who you are. Disagree with him. God, that vision, I'm not sure that's the right thing for me. Talk to him about it. It'll deepen your relationship with God. And second, talk to other Christ followers. You just heard a bunch here. Lots of stuff. In your life groups, with your friend groups, talk about what you just learned. Ask questions, probe, push back and forth. The goal is to have this ideal deepen so that it changes how you see your own sexuality. And because when you do that, you make it easier for the Holy Spirit to come alongside you and walk with you. Some of you are hearing the Holy Spirit right now about some things you can do 
right now to move you closer to God's ideal. Talk to a Christian friend, get some wisdom, and go ahead and make the changes. But for all of us, we cannot forget that we have a glorious calling. Okay? The culture says, we live to express ourselves. That's what the culture says. Jesus says, we live to express God. It's an incredible calling. It is a glorious calling. Do you want it? Let me pray for us. Father, I feel like there's so much going on in that, in what you're getting at that I don't fully understand. There's just whole thing about sex and marriage and how they're supposed to represent you and how that represents our relationship. That, that kind of gets me. But I know other people are thinking different things right now and they're in different situations. So I, Father, I, I, there's no way we can, I can, I can talk about all those situations, but I'm asking your Holy Spirit to help each and, single, each and every one of us to be thinking, to be processing, that your Spirit is walking alongside us. Transform the way we think, transform the way we see ourselves. Help us embrace the calling to express you. We want to know you. We want to love you. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.